1: but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. This is Outside In. I'm Nate Hedgie. A couple of months ago, producer Felix Poon found himself watching two tortoises getting a bit active underneath a coffee table.
2: So that is a red-footed tortoise, that's Pizza Man, and that is Sprockets, that is a black Burmese mountain tortoise. Are they doing what I think they're doing? or They are doing that, yeah. Pizza Man is a very virile male, and he enjoys his friends as much as he can.
1: That, by the way, is Alexia Bell. She runs something called the Turtle Rescue League out of her house in Southbridge, Massachusetts. Which makes it sound like an amateur operation, but I can assure you it is
2: not. We have a Blanding's turtle, small painted turtles. We have a red-eared slider. They've got personalized polos, a turtle ambulance,
1: and inside the house looks part aquarium, part animal hospital. And
2: it is packed to the cloaca with turtles. Most houses wouldn't be able to withstand this kind of weight. They would break. Simply from the weight of the turtles? The weight of the water. Of the water. Downstairs there is probably 20,000 pounds of water.
1: There are a lot of reasons why animals need rescuing. Abandoned pets, retired racehorses, But as with the origin story of the Turtle Rescue League, a lot of rescues start with pavement. Some years back, Alexia and her partner Natasha were driving on their way to a hiking spot when they saw a turtle crossing the highway.
2: So I pulled over and I stopped, and there was a pond right off the exit that we were going on. So I popped it in the pond, thinking that was going to be the end of it.
1: The next day, they saw another turtle on the same road. And this one did not look good.
2: A lot of its organs were spilled out, so its intestines and everything were spilled out onto the ground. And the ground was, you know, it was hot tar, it was baking in the sun. So I just, uh, I couldn't stand seeing it suffer. So we did what we did and we did a roadside euthanasia, which is not fun. So we did what we had to do and put out of its misery. I know this might be graphic, but can you describe exactly what you did? Yeah, sure. So I took the turtle, and I basically placed its head under the front of my car tire and ran over it.
1: That was years ago. Today, Alexia and Natasha take in about 250 turtles a year in their home slash turtle rescue league. And while some of those are accidentally run over by lawnmowers or found injured in the wild a vast majority are hit by cars.
2: So it looks like the car hit him from the left side. So he's got a left uh, crack and a damaged bridge. So now there's a bit of floppiness going on there. So we're going to give him pain relief.
3: You know, I think the irony of roads is that for all of the mobility and freedom they've provided us humans, they do precisely the opposite to nature.
1: That's Ben Goldfarb. He's author of the book Crossings, How Road Ecology is Shaping the Future of Our Planet. And while cars might not seem like a big threat compared to climate change and habitat loss, what Ben will tell you is that around one million vertebrate animals are killed on American roads every single day. One million.
3: We treat roads as though they're rivers, you know, some geological feature that's been there forever, when in reality, you know, our our roads are uh, these recent constructions. They're these forces of division and separation and isolation and, and death.
1: Today on Outside In, producer Felix Poon talks to Ben Goldfarb about how two very different animal species are impacted by roads. He'll explain how our infrastructure turns so deadly and what people are trying to do about it. Here's Felix.
4: Ben Goldfarb is the kind of guy who's thought long and hard about one of the world's least interesting jokes.
3: You know, the, In the logic of the joke, the road is sort of inevitable, right? And it's it's the chicken whose actions are questionable and foolish and and, uh, and dubious. You know, why did the chicken cross the road? We don't actually examine the more important question, which is why did the road cross the land in the first place?
4: Who put the road there? Who put the road there? It might seem like an obvious question, but human beings were not actually the first species to start breaking trails. We're just the first ones to pave them over.
3: There were lots of accounts from uh, colonists you know, describing how you know 10 men could walk abreast along a, a bison
4: trail. Ben says a lot of the old bison trails that crisscrossed America became footpaths for indigenous people. And then colonists repurposed those footpaths into rough and ready wagon roads. But then...
3: You know, it was, it was really bicycle riders who who first pushed the country uh, to improve its roads. And the League of American Wheelmen, this group of bicycle riders, called out all of the the crummy roads all over the country and, and uh, lauded the ones that had been improved. So it was really, you know, the bicycle riders who, pushing for improved roads, literally paved the way for the takeover of cars.
4: Now, before you go blaming cyclists... You should know that when cars took over the roads, it was actually pretty controversial. They're running down
3: pedestrians, you know, they're taking over streets. Uh, You know, cars are considered these
4: these death machines. But today we pour hundreds of billions of dollars every year, maintaining more than four million miles worth of open road. The car is this sort of unstoppable force
3: and, and the animals are collateral damage.
4: Collateral damage. Roadkill. These euphemisms speak to the fact that animals haven't adapted well to a world spider-webbed with asphalt. Some species are what ecologists call road avoiders. Grizzly bears are one example. Even one car every 10 minutes,
3: uh, in some cases, is enough to prevent grizzly bears from crossing a road. And as a result, they you know essentially end up in these little islands of habitat because they refuse to cross highways and they don't find mates and, uh, and food as a result.
4: But most species aren't cautious enough with roads. Some even get mesmerized by cars. The reason that deer freeze in headlights is that they have pupils
3: that fully dilate in low light conditions to absorb as much light as possible.
4: A useful adaptation to see a mountain lion coming for you in the dark, but not so useful on the road. You know, when you're being hit by the high beams of an F-150, you're just completely blinded. And then you've got amphibians and reptiles. These are animals that sometimes travel across roads en masse. We actually talked about this in one of our very first Outside In episodes, 10 by 10 Vernal Pools.
3: Frogs, salamanders, turtles, snakes that biologists have described as non-responders, basically animals that are just going to cross the road no matter what. And that's, uh, you know, that's that's, of course, really dangerous because you get these kind of catastrophic roadkill events where, you know, cars will flatten hundreds or thousands of amphibians in a night.
4: From a sheer numbers perspective, squirrels are the most common type of roadkill. But squirrels are zigzaggers that often sprint into traffic. Turtles, by comparison, seem like they'd be easy to dodge. But Ben told us a story that says otherwise.
3: Matthew Oresko, he's a herpetologist, uh, you know, a a scientist who studies reptiles. Uh, He grew up fascinated by turtles, loved turtles from uh, a young age, moved down to Florida to, to do his Ph.D. research on turtles.
4: So one day, Matt gets a tip about a bunch of turtles trying to cross six lanes of highway just south of Orlando, Florida.
3: Matt Oresco goes to check out this situation. You know, he basically finds this just catastrophic turtle massacre.
4: On one side of Highway 27 is Lake Jackson. From satellite photos, it looks a little bit like a ping pong paddle. On the other side of the highway is Little Lake Jackson, which looks like the ping-pong ball. The highway splits them in two, and Big Lake Jackson was drying up. That was driving all these turtles from one side to the other, where there was still water. Matt, the turtle scientist, scraped up 90 smashed turtles on that first day. Their shells cracked like hard-boiled eggs, and underneath, you could see their pink bodies like magma oozing out of fissures in volcanic rock. Matt went back there every day with big plastic tubs. He picked up as many live turtles as he could and released them on the other side. And he does this for months,
3: going out there every day, uh, picking up turtles, and he moves thousands of turtles.
4: Matt noticed an imbalance between the sexes. Because the highway shoulder was prime habitat for females to lay their eggs, females were dying at much higher rates than males. And Matt knew that a population that loses too many females is doomed. The irony here is that we know exactly how to solve this problem. The trick to helping wildlife cross a road is to build another road, albeit a different one, one that's built for wildlife. They're called wildlife crossings, tunnels or bridges that give animals a safe passage across roads and highways. The first ones were built in Europe in the 1970s. Hunters were worried about dwindling populations of wild game, which were getting hit and killed by cars. Not long after, the U.S. started building crossings to address deer vehicle crashes or DVCs which still kill hundreds of people and probably tens of thousands of deer every year. Hitting a turtle on the road, though, isn't much of a danger to humans or their cars. And given the sorry state of roads and bridges built for people, you can imagine it's a hard sell trying to get funding to build roads for turtles. But on Highway 27, there happened to be a little something called a culvert. You know, this big a uh, pipe, essentially, that connects the two lakes beneath the highway. Culverts are normally for letting water pass under a road. But Matt Oresko thought maybe this one could be used as a wildlife crossing if he could just get the turtles to use it. Then I basically asked the state of Florida to
3: build a fence, basically, that's going to guide the turtles to this to this culvert. Weeks go by. And then, you know, the stage just, you know, sends him like uh, a few rolls of mesh and says, okay, you know, go for it. Knock yourself out.
4: Matt builds a kind of DIY fence, and it doesn't really work. All it does is keep the turtles off the road, which gives him a chance to capture them and move them himself. In the end, he moves more than 8,000 turtles. Matt was getting fed up. He knew what the turtles really needed was a long term solution, a real wildlife crossing with concrete walls and multiple culverts. So he started campaigning. He founded a nonprofit, rallied supporters to elect a pro turtle candidate to local office, and he got letters of support from around the world. The state finally agreed to build a crossing using money from Barack Obama's 2009 stimulus package. When the plan was announced, there was national backlash.
3: Tom Coburn, this uh, sort of famously tight-fisted senator from Oklahoma, catches wind of this and sort of uses this as the prime example of federal government waste. Should we really be spending that kind
1: of money on turtles? There's plenty of turtles in Florida if you haven't been there lately.
4: Matt worried the state would back out under all the scrutiny.
3: Fox News talks about it. Even CNN kind of makes
4: fun of it. But to Matt's surprise, Florida went ahead with the plan and completed the crossing in 2010. He still got updates on the Lake Jackson turtles, even after the crossing was built. He even got a call from a, uh, an alligator trapper
3: uh, who found one of the turtles he tagged in a gator's belly. Uh, And uh, this guy called him and said, hey, I found one of your turtles. And, you know, and and even even that Mataresco found somewhat satisfying in that it was proof that, you know, turtles were playing every role in the in the food web. Uh, You know, they were out there nesting and being eaten and doing their thing and, and being turtles as they should be.
1: That's one happy ending in a story that doesn't seem to have a lot of them. But cars don't just threaten species by squishing whole populations one animal at a time. Our roads also cause societal and even genetic mayhem. That's coming up next.
0: Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget.
1: Hey, Nate here. Have you ever dreamed of going on the voyages of some of the most famous and not-so-famous explorers in history? If so, then you should check out the Explorers podcast. Host Matt Breen takes you into jungles and frigid wastelands, across deserts and oceans, and to the top of great mountains as you explore the triumph, glory, and tragedy of each explorer. There are extraordinary stories of Shackleton, Magellan, Cook, Lewis and Clark, and so many other daring people from all across the world and from throughout history. Each explorer's story is told in rich, immersive detail, and each topic is given as much time as needed to tell the whole tale, ranging from 30 minutes to 10 hours. There's something for everyone. Find the Explorers Podcast wherever you get your podcasts, or go to explorerspodcast.com to learn more. Welcome back to Outside In. I'm Nate Hedgie, and today we are talking about how animals have adapted or not adapted to a world crisscrossed by roads and highways. Here's producer Felix Boone.
4: In the early 2000s, the National Park Service started a study of cougars. Not in the remote Rocky Mountains or along the borders of Texas, but in the Santa Monica Mountains just outside of Los Angeles. At the time, they weren't sure there were any cougars left there.
3: You know, nobody really knew that those, the, these cats were still there. They'd sort of heard scattered reports from hikers but uh, you know they weren't quite
4: sure and then they actually caught p1 that's author ben goldfarb the p in p1 stands for puma concolor, the species scientific name by the way they're also called cougars mountain lions and panthers and the one in p1 means it was the first cougar that researchers caught and outfitted with a gps collar to study its movements but their excitement quickly gave way to horror as they observed P1 go berserk across the Santa Monica Mountains. He killed
3: his own mate. He killed some of his own offspring and actually
4: mated with one of his own daughters. Ben says this kind of violence and incest, it's not unheard of among cougars. But the researchers were like, this is a whole nother level.
3: There was something a little bit uh, strange about this this population. And maybe, you know, the very small size of the island that all these cats were trapped on was part of the problem.
4: By island, Ben doesn't mean a literal island. He means that the Santa Monica mountain range, by cougar standards at least, is really small. It's walled off by the Pacific Ocean to the south, suburbs block off the west, and then there's these behemoth 10 and 12 lane highways to the north and east, US 101 and Interstate 405. The thing about cougars is that they're a very male-dominated territorial society, there can only be one male in any territory. That's why when young male cougars are born, they have to
3: sort of disperse out to new territories. Uh, you know, they have to get away from their, their own fathers, essentially.
4: But here in the Santa Monica's, these young males, they'll get
3: killed by their own their own fathers because they can't leave. They're just hemmed in by freeways on all
4: sides. There's a term for what these highways have done to the Santa Monicas. Landscape dissection. It's a fitting term for how roads slice through the landscape with the surgical precision of a scalpel. It used to be scientists like Darwin had to go all the way to the Galapagos to see the ecological effects of islands. But with widespread landscape dissection, there are little islands everywhere. In the northern Rockies, scientists can tell which side of the highway a grizzly was born on just by looking at their DNA. In Europe, there's a distinct population of beetles that only lives in one highway exit loop. If the animals disappeared from these islands, it would be an extirpation, a local extinction. Extirpations can and will add up. The scientists studying the Santa Monica cougars knew all this which is why they were excited when, against all odds, a cougar named P-12 crossed the 101 and survived. He killed P-1, the unhinged cougar that slaughtered his own family. Or not. Scientists aren't quite sure how he died. Either way, P-12 became the new dominant male, infusing some much-needed fresh DNA into the population. But as the years passed, P-12 fell into the same trap P-1 did know, no new
3: cats were able to follow him. So he ended up mating with his own daughter and then his own granddaughter and then eventually his own great-granddaughter. And, you know, the, the population became even more inbred over time. So, you know, really what that showed is that maybe once in a while, every you know number of years uh, a cougar is capable of crossing one of these busy freeways and entering or leaving this population but it's it's not going to be reliable right and that you know even if p12 made it there's no way of counting on new cats entering this population unless we help them
4: Like the turtles in Florida, conservationists wanted a wildlife crossing here, for the cougars. But this would require something of a whole different magnitude. The 101 spans a whopping 10 lanes. 12 if you count the breakdown lanes. So a tunnel wouldn't work because it would be too long and dark. Wildlife would never use it. Plus, they didn't just want it to work for cougars. They wanted all animals to use it, like deer, lizards, frogs, all of them with their own needs, like barriers to block the noise and headlights from cars. Basically, a long, wide nature highway, complete with trees and grasses and flowers. The price tag for all of this? Estimates ballooned to over $100 million. But conservationists like Beth Pratt weren't deterred.
3: Beth's an amazing person, sort of like Matt Oresko, the turtle guy. You know, she's devoted a, a huge proportion of her life to promoting the cause to build this
4: wildlife crossing um, that, you know, P-22 symbolized. It might be hard keeping track of all of these cougars, but P-22 was a son of P-1. And after crossing two of L.A.'s superhighways, he became famous as the lone member of his species in Griffith Park, the hills where the Hollywood sign is. It's the smallest known territory for a cougar. And P22 endeared himself to Los Angelinos as a sort of spokescat for Beth's campaign.
0: The most famous mountain lion in the world P22. P22.
2: P22. P-22. And I'm so dedicated, I even have a P22 tattoo. <laughs>
3: Beth Pratt there, instrumental to all of this, says that was her first tattoo
0: at age 40.
4: Because of Beth's work and P-22's fame, donations rolled in. And then finally, this year in 2023.
1: Well, on this Earth Day, a long-awaited project to build a wildlife crossing over the 101 freeway is getting started. As a mountain
2: lion sightings across the south.
4: When it's complete at the end of 2025, the Wallace Annenberg Wildlife Crossing will be the first bridge in the California highway system designed specifically for wildlife. And it'll be the largest wildlife crossing in the world. Unfortunately, P22, the spokescat that helped inspire donations, he won't be around for the ribbon cutting. He was hit by a car last year and had to be euthanized. let's just pause a second. So it took a celebrity cat and this huge campaign to get this impossibly complex crossing built. And even he can't be saved. So just how hopeful are we supposed to feel about wildlife crossings?
3: You know, the the 2021 Infrastructure Act, uh, you know, had this $350 million pot of funding for wildlife crossings, you know, the largest pool of money Ever allotted to animal-friendly infrastructure, and yet, you know, that's basically enough to treat every single roadkill hotspot in California with no money left over for all of the other states.
4: Yeah. So, what what can be done? Like, if, okay, if someone's listening to this, they're like, "Man, I want to get involved in this." Like, where where should they begin?
3: So, one of the great things about road ecology, I think, is that you know we're all part of the problem, but you know we're all we're all potentially part of the solution as well. You know, there are lots of great citizen science apps out there that, you know, allow you to record your roadkill sightings. And in some cases, you know, those sightings have actually informed the construction of wildlife crossings. One of the really fun things that I did while uh, writing this book um, was was take part in a frog shuttle, moving frogs and salamanders from point A to point B safely without getting crushed. You know, there's also, I mean, there's practically every state in the country at this point either has recently passed a bill or is in the process of, of passing a bill that's going to allocate new money for wildlife crossings and and fences and you know certainly there are opportunities to participate in that process by you know writing letters to uh to politicians and and so on it
4: looks nice and wooded here yeah
0: all righty we're gonna pull over here
1: and get a look at the water on this side
4: last month i tagged along with two staff from the turtle rescue league to release turtles back into the wild they scattered a few spots along the edge of a reservoir until they found a good spot for the adult turtle they had. Welcome home, guy.
1: <laughs> so shall I go grab him from the car and bring him on yes. over? All righty.
4: <laughs> Michaela Konder and Natasha Nowick carried a big plastic container from the car down to the edge of the reservoir and opened the top, revealing a huge snapping turtle, almost the size of a spare car tire.
0: So here's our old guy. Um, you can actually see he's got all kinds of worn areas
2: on his shell. You can really tell, um, that, that he's
0: a bit aged. Shall we lift him?
2: I think we shall. <laughs> okay. Alright. I'll just move the box. Yeah. Okay, So okay, Here buddy. we go, buddy. Oh, here we go. Oh, what do you think? <laughs> you ready to go home? Oh, he likes it.
4: This turtle wasn't hit by a car. But afterwards, we went to a shallower part of the reservoir to release 50 snapping turtle hatchlings. Each one of these turtles was no bigger than a half dollar coin, babies from a few mom turtles that were hit by cars but didn't survive.
2: Three, four, and five. All righty,
0: five little babies.
4: For every wildlife crossing in the United States, there are 4,000 miles of road. That's the distance between Jacksonville, Florida and Juneau, Alaska. For people trying to rescue animals from being roadkill, it seems like a Sisyphean task. But Michaela and Natasha tell me that snapping turtles can live up to 175 years. The car wasn't even invented 175 years ago. Just imagine 175 years from now, the year 2198. These turtles could live to see the year 2198. What will our roads look like then? What will our world look like? It's okay, mine are scrambling in different directions. Hey, that's your butt you're
0: putting your foot on. Here we go, kid. Oop, you're not staying. <laughs> okay, kids. Are you ready, kid? Do You see what's out there? Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Let me take you down to the water. There we go.
2: Okay. Last one. Good luck, number 51.
0: Okay. Be good.
1: If you want to learn more about the Turtle Rescue League, be sure to check out the new book of Time and Turtles, Mending the World Shell by Shattered Shell by Cy Montgomery. Alexia and Tasha and Michaela are all in it, plus Pizza Man and Sprockets, the turtle lovers you heard at the top of the episode. And be sure to sign up for our newsletter so you can get a behind-the-scenes look at the reporting for this episode. You can do so by going on to our website, outsideinradio.org, where you can also find our newsletter archives in case you miss it in your inbox. This episode was produced and reported by Felix Poon. It was edited by Taylor Quimby. I'm your host, Nate Hedgie. Our team also includes Justine Paradise. Rebecca Lavoy is our executive producer. Music in this episode came from Jay Varton, Ran Aldo, and Blue Dot Sessions. And Outside In is a production of NHPR.